This is a remote voice podcast from Arnhem Land, and I'm Daniel Silva, and this is the third in a series of letters that I'm writing from here about this place and my experience of it. And in this letter, it follows a soft landing with an encounter with some stories and more than that, an encounter with complexity, a kind of complexity that, well, one thing I've been realizing in writing these letters is that there's a certain kind of complexity that only story can capture because it's more than they're just being competing arguments or rationales or perspectives, but there are times when it seems like in a given situation, the competing perspectives are alive and they are trying to be heard and they move and only only characterization and space and time can provide for the depth of field that that kind of complexity requires. And I think that that is what stories can do. If you would like to read these letters, you can do that on my website, danielsilver.work. I also post photos and other things there. And you can see some um, examples of other work that I've done or get in touch as well, which would be awesome. So now I'll read letter number three, which is entitled Remote Voices. The other night I dreamed I was in a park waiting to see a man about a horse. It was a white horse and I planned to have my photo taken with it. But when the man arrived, I saw that the horse was emaciated. Through its white skin, I could see every one of its ribs. I gathered some hay and went to offer food to the horse, but the man stopped me. He said the horse was on a strict diet. I implored the man to let me feed the horse, but he was adamant. I said he was abusing the horse, that I had no choice but to call the police. An officer arrived, but he was unable to help, so I went with him to petition the superintendent. He too was unable to help, so I met with the lawyer, who tried to make a case, but eventually had to give up. Thus I found myself standing in the hall of the president. 
I was nervous but pretended not to be when I barged into his office and sat down. The president was a fat man with an oversized monobrow pasted to his forehead. He sat behind a large wooden desk. I wasn't sure whether to trust the president, but I told him that something ought to be done. He responded calmly and somewhat assured. He said the problem was more complex than I knew, that I hadn't every side of the story. I was unsatisfied, but I'd reached the end of a road, and I woke up. On my second day in Gapuyak, I met Judy Davy. Judy was one of a handful of pioneering missionaries to arrive here in 1969 with enough sawmilling equipment to start a town. She was sent by an organization called Methodist Overseas Mission, one of two organizations that many people hold responsible for some of the darkest social policies in Australia's history. In the first half of the 20th century, efforts to protect and assimilate Aboriginal people achieved stolen children and terrestrial alienation. Yet, for all the tragedy that lies at the feet of MOM, and there is no shortage of it, by the time Gapuyak was established, the missionaries were in principle committed to non-interference with Jungle tradition, self-determination and claims for land rights. And they preached a contextualized brand of Christianity that allowed Jungle to appropriate tenets of the faith from their own frames of reference. I don't intend to go any further than those principles down the rabbit hole of validity. Suffice to say that Judy told me Gapuyak was established in response to fears that BHP, who were mining further north, would make their way into the area. That representatives of seven or so clans, with homeland stretching 30 kilometres in every direction, shared with missionaries a vision for a self-sustaining centre for commerce and spirit that would send a message to the mining juggernauts to keep their distance. Several town elders corroborate Judy's story, and so it was that 30 people from a disparate set of distinct groups came together to mill timber, build roads, and maintain supplies of water and power. In exchange, they received food, tobacco, medical care, protection, and education. According to Judy, in the early days of Gapuyak, all decisions were left to a group of community elders. That included the allocation of jobs, the resolution of disputes, and the transmission of law and custom. The missionaries refrained from interfering in traditional ceremonies, of which funerals in particular were a significant part of people's lives, and still are today. In fact, on the day I arrived in Gapuyak, a funeral ceremony that had been going for two weeks was coming to an end. The sound of clapsticks echoed day and night from the ceremonial grounds in the centre of town. It was too soon after my arrival to presume an invitation, but I look forward to satisfying the curiosity summoned by the sound of those clapsticks. Like Judy, I came to Gapuyak in response to a call to serve this community. In my first four days here, I'd already come up with at least that many revolutionary ideas and on the night before my first day at Gapuyak School, as a volunteer arts educator, enlisted to run various art projects for community development, I went to bed positively enchanted. That same night, I dreamt of the white horse. 
The next day, only 30 of the 220 children enrolled were in attendance at Gapuyak school. The day started with a school-wide march in the streets. Two Yungo teachers corralled the students and played call and response with slogans beckoning more to attend. Through a loudspeaker they pleaded with a silent town, imploring parents to send their children. It was a demonstration that I'm told takes place twice per term, and during each school day a team of Yungo attendance officers are on alert to dissuade children from leaving during recess and lunch. Inevitably, though, days end with fewer than they begin, leaving fingers to point in many directions, each a story to tell. Having left Kapuyak in 1975, Judy returned in the late 1990s. By then things were very different. Though they welcomed her with familial affection, the people were largely unemployed and disaffected. The growing town had attracted new infrastructure, but local people were never trained to sustain it. Changes to building regulations in the wake of Cyclone Tracy meant civil works were completed entirely by fly-in, fly-out contractors. Only the general store remained a source of stable employment. For others, it was just enough to collect sit-down money from government leases. In Judy's words, whereas before she was here to build a town and church, when she returned in the 90s, her mission was of a different nature. This time she was a symbol of the past, here to rise up the old memories and spirits and say this is what your fathers were like, this is what your grandfathers. A reminder of what was done in the past, a reminder of where the community had come from, a reminder of what could be achieved. Judy's story is a call to remember that what brought people together here was never easy access to food or state-of-the-art facilities. It was never token pleasantries exchanged from behind thin veils of proclaimed respect. It was the shared responsibility of carrying out a shared vision. So what's the vision now? The windscreen is foggy at best. But clues lie in the rear-view mirror, in the stories that stretch from the present moment to the distant past, remote voices of grandmothers and grandfathers, their triumphs and mistakes, their hopes and dreams. When the early missionaries arrived in Arnhem Land, they carried a story, a story that remains deep in the fabric of our Judeo-Christian culture to this day. The story goes that following the great flood, the people of earth proceeded to build a city and tower that would reach to heaven. But their efforts were thwarted by God, who scattered them into nations with different languages, each unable to understand the others. The early missionaries interpreted the story to mean that no heavenly tower would ever be built until everyone was the same. Later missionaries, like Judy, began to see their tower for what it really was, a problem more complex than any one interpretation can resolve, a white horse. After all, from God's perspective, the story of Babel is a warning not to attempt the hubristic task of heavenly infrastructure. In contrast, there is the history of Gapuyak as dreamed by some of the Yungul people. In that story, two men were walking from Yukala when they saw a small pond with a little bit of water but not enough to drink. They walked to a nearby site of sacred men's business and found a tree suitable for Yudaki, didgeridoo. They chopped it down and painted it beautifully, 
Then the two men danced, and one man was singing, and one man was dancing. They sang about the warren bird. Then they saw the warren was flying to the small pond and was carrying a small fish, but there was not enough water in the pond to put the fish in. So the fish started talking to the men and said, Can you get the yadaki and put it in the middle of the pond? The two men slammed the yadaki down in the middle of the pond, and gapu, water, began coming up through its middle. It kept coming until there was a huge lake of water. The men, the bird, and the yadaki are still there today. The two stories, together with that of Judy Davy, begin to paint a composite picture of Gapuyak. It's a complex history through which no simple story can chart a course. And yet, perhaps a simple story is the first step towards a shared vision. So I wrote one. And together with two Yongul teachers, we translated it and told it to the kids at Gapuyak School. The story goes. A long time ago, near a big lake, there were some people. Yungul people and Balanda people. They needed to build a town. The Balanda people were good at building and the Yungul people knew the history of the lake and how to find food. So they decided to work together. But there was a problem. The Balanda people spoke English and the Yungul people spoke Yungumata. So even though they were standing together, they couldn't speak. It was becoming dark, so the people lit a fire. Suddenly a bird landed nearby. It was a big black bird and it made a loud sound. The Yungul people saw the bird and called its name, Wakya. The Balanda people saw the bird too and called its name, Crow. The people looked across and they understood. To work together, they must first learn each other's names. With that, I enlisted the help of a man to commence teaching me Yungumata. I've no idea how far I'll get. But as far as the question of how best to serve this community, it's the way forward. And in the meantime, I'll continue to work diligently to provide the young people here with every opportunity to express themselves in the only universal language that no one understands, art. And of course, I'll keep writing about it in English. With love, Daniel. Okay, that's the third letter. And I think, by way of postscript, I have said what I needed to say in the beginning, in the introduction, that, well, to, to repeat that, to bring things full circle, that is to say that there are things so complex that the component parts are almost autonomous and only a story can provide the texture adequate to give expression to that kind of complexity. And the amazing thing is that no matter the complexity, the story can communicate it and we can hear it and understand it, even if it's 
not possible to put that into words other than story, that doesn't mean the knowledge hasn't been communicated. For those who are interested, there is a field of study that looks at this that I came across last year and have been reading, although at the moment I'm still only getting started in it, but it's the field of mythopoetics. Mytho being from the word mythos, which is the kind of knowledge contained in story, and poetics being the kind of language that is capable of communicating that knowledge. And it's a field in curriculum theory. I'm currently reading a book called Pedagogies of the Imagination, which is a series of essays about that. Maybe I'll um, put together some kind of summary or blog post at some point. Anyway, that's the end of the episode. Thanks for listening and I'll be back with number four.